and welcome back to They Made Another One, where each week we study an often forgotten installment in a franchise and see how it holds up all on its own. I'm one of your hosts, Corey. And I'm your other host, Liam. And, you know, shit's still bad. I'm going to lead with that. It's the thing we're all thinking about. We're, we're deep in the quarantine times, and uh, it's all still pretty shitty and terrible. And um, over the past couple of weeks, Liam and I have tried a couple different things to sort of get over these woes you know we had invisible man which was just very good and maybe that would help we had laura on to talk about to all the boys ps i still love you because that's just sweet and nice and friendship is good and we thought that might help uh last week the goal was just nicholas cage will just radiate his power upon us and we'll feel better um i think all of those helped in different ways but everything's still pretty shit um so we're returning to our roots this week, but before I give away how we're returning to our roots, Liam, I want to ask how you've been doing. How are you holding up? I'm good, man. Not much has changed for me. Uh, you know, we're kind of at the point where things are changing really fast in the outside world, and the only way we can uh, try to stabilize that and make things not change as fast is by not changing a whole lot here, you know? So I just, mm-hmm. I'm still just going to work, uh, watching some movies, staying in, you know? not doing band practice uh luckily podcast is remote we are veterans at doing it remotely yeah cory and i were in the same house we practiced social distancing before it was cool we did uh, it was uh (laughs) we're about as proactive as you can get as podcasters we're the proactive podcasters that's what they call us and that's who we are that's Um, right yeah so not a lot has changed for me man what about you yeah i mean uh i'm still working too we're considered essential so we're on the grind um Real quick, quick shout out to everyone else who's considered essential, namely like, you know, healthcare workers and people who work in stores and people getting it far worse than we are, despite still being considered essential. Thank you for everything that you're doing. And yeah, I'm just trying to sort of make it work. I am still predominantly sleeping on your couch. Uh, I did make a trip back to my house where all of my stuff is uh, when I had some time off of work to just sort of restock myself. That's where I'm recording from now. Uh, but other than that, I'm still just going to be going to work and then uh, on your couch. So things are going to be pretty, pretty, pretty much the same. And um, speaking of keeping things pretty much the same, we wanted to we OK, we had a lot of episodes recently where their appropriateness for the concept of the show, as described in the intro that I just said, was dubious. Um, even if you go back to like cats you know that was a bit of a stretch uh to all the boys that was a bit of a stretch and it felt like we were getting a little bit away from invisible man's a little bit of a stretch because it's more of like a reimagining it's not really attached to those other things it's a bit of a stretch and we felt like we were getting away from that core concept that started this show um 35 episodes ago i think now which is a big number and um, we thought, what better way to try to recenter ourselves in these trying times than go back to our roots, which, of course, is just a horror movie sequel from the 80s that everyone forgot about. That's pretty much our bread and butter. And uh, there is a finite number of memorable 80s horror movies slash franchises, 80s, 70s, whatever. It's a fluid thing. They start in years. They end in other years. Time has lost all meaning at this point the days bleed together uh, hours feel like weeks and um we thought we would maybe remedy that by taking a quick look at poltergeist 3 from 1988 which is directed and written by gary sherman 
who worked on a TV series called Poltergeist The Legacy, which has nothing to do with the Poltergeist movies, um, was also written by Brian Taggart. That's very funny, yeah. Um, cinemat- Is that what got him the job? Did that, was no, that before other, the Poltergeist Other way movie? around. <laughs> Holy moly, they saw Poltergeist 3 and they were like, yo, we gotta We gotta get the in. Poltergeist guy. Um, <laughs> we gotta get the Poltergeist guy. <laughs> Steven Spielberg and Toby Hooper won't answer. They were busy. <laughs> They're screening our calls uh, because they don't like the fact that we called it The Legacy, despite having nothing to do with their movies. So we're going to go with the third guy. Um, cinematography by Alex Nep- Nep- Nepomenaishi. I don't know why I even tried to say that name. I could have just not said who shot this movie. Music by Joe Renzetti, based on characters created by Steven Spielberg. Everyone would know the original movie, you know, directed by Toby Hooper. Um Notably, this will come up. Wikipedia page absolutely specifies influenced by Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. Keep this in mind, especially if you have not seen the movie. Keep it in your brain. The cast is Heather O'Rourke, Tom Carrot, Nancy Allen, Zelda Rubinstein, Laura Flynn Boyle, Richard Fire, which is a great name, Nathan Davis, and Kip Wentz, which is also a great name. And that is um, a good name. So a couple actors returning from other movies, namely Heather O'Rourke as Carol Ann, who um, I'm just going to say real quick off the top is a powerhouse in this movie. Just incredible. So I was that was a fun performance to see for the first time. And uh, Zelda Rubenstein had been the others playing Tangina. Um, And it's the triumphant return of Nancy Allen to the podcast, not to be confused with Tim, who uh, has also been a regular fixture on our program but you'll remember nancy allen from robocop 3 um if you heard that episode if you didn't i guarantee you will not remember nancy allen from robocop 3 <laughs> and um so liam as yeah. we as we did in the olden days around our first 10 ish episodes i would say this is a horror franchise i'm unfamiliar with and therefore i defer to our resident horror guy um, this oh. is this is once again true in the sense that uh, I know the gist of Poltergeist and I've seen the big scenes uh, and I've seen it parodied, but I've never seen the movie. So uh, could you please catch us up on what the deal is with Poltergeist? Sure. Yeah, I think you pretty much got the deal there, Corey. If you know the big scenes, um, it's about a suburban family that moves into this house. Maybe they already live in the house. Uh and uh, it starts to get poltergeist by poltergeist. Well, I think and... the dad like built the house, right? Like it was his, he chose the location. Oh, you know, that very well might be the case because the whole deal is the house is built on top of like a graveyard, like with skeletons and stuff. Right. And yeah. so that's what poltergeists them. And uh, while they're there, um, they start to get haunted, so they bring some people in to try to help them figure out what's going on and get back at the ghosts in uh, a sort of paranormal activity way, minus the found footage, or uh, an insidious way, minus the Tiny Tim song. And um, it's just, uh, I've seen it one time, um, but in my recollection, dude, it's its just a killer movie. It's, it's, it's like uh, other Steven Spielberg movies, um, and I know it was directed by Toby Hooper, but it, it reminds me of Steven Spielberg movies in the way that the big scenes are really, really big. Um, and you would think that that's enough going in, but also when you watch it from front to back, it feels so uh, 
so filled out and it feels like all those big scenes fit perfectly within the film it's not you're not just waiting for the big scenes to happen right in a like the Man like the style. small scenes are as good as the big scenes it's that's like a right. cohesive yeah. thing that's sort of spielberg's forte i feel like is that that sort of like uh, i'm gonna use the word heart even though that's not necessarily accurate for like every movie tonally that he's ever done but like that sort of carries through everything there's a very specific like spielbergian kind of flair even if we're dipping into like the horror territory so i think that tracks i did just read uh, as a quick aside that um they're gonna be rebooting poltergeist again uh mm. and it's gonna be the russo brothers who are the marvel guys and that sounds fucking terrible oh man um, marvel guys yeah so it's not like i think that they're incapable of making a film but it's like i don't know man just because they're making the big movies nowadays that people love a la spielberg maybe that doesn't mean you need to give them the characters and see what they do yeah i am interested with taking big filmmakers and putting them in the horror world though because normally it's the opposite someone really breaks through in the horror world like james wan with insidious and then they put him on the big projects like aquaman yeah it's not so often that you see the reverse happen so that kind of makes me think that but that makes me so brothers must have a, like a, a killer idea maybe or they're just known my my concern would be not scaling it down um, in the way that I feel like based on Poltergeist 3 and my knowledge of the original, like that it feels like a fairly small movie or a very focused, like intimate kind of thing. Like it's a family in a house and shit's fucking nuts. Um, and I feel like it would get like too big too fast or very like bombastic in a way. Um, I mean, this is all conjecture. I don't know like what's going to come of that or if we'll ever even see that actually come to fruition. I'm sure it's just like in development. And as we know, all movies ever created are currently on hiatus. So uh, this is actually the only movie you can watch right now is Poltergeist 3. And uh, <laughs> everybody has one VHS tape of it and we're sharing it uh, via the mail. And um, if you don't rewind the tape, you actually lose a hand. <laughs> Corey, I got to cut off your hand, man, man. When I started this, the credits were already rolling. You didn't pull it back for me. Are you sure? I'm, mm, mm, I'm pretty sure I did. Uh, did you no, put the wrong I mean, tape in? I don't I don't think so. What did this the credits is, say? The credits said that was Poltergeist <laughs> 3 and then That sounds uh, like a bootleg. I don't think the movie says that. Circle. I'm not convinced the uh, movie says that. I don't know what I had then. I might have got it like off the black market where people are selling other movies in these trying times. Poltergeist. I thought you said Poltergeist and it's a guy who just does like hardware repair. <laughs> <laughs> um so uh Anyway, speaking of anything but Poltergeist, Poltergeist 3 has Carol Ann as our central figure. It's the little girl from the first movie who talks to the TV people. Um, and she has been sort of offloaded, it seems, on some relatives and is attending like a school for gifted children with emotional problems, as the movie describes it, which is just a wild way to describe what that is and um she lives with bruce and pat gardner who are like an uncle and aunt and um a cousin named donna and they live in this big chicago skyscraper building that is uh, a brand new 
fancy situation that the Bruce character runs. Uh, there is a quote when they're on a bunch of escalators and shit that says the building is described as a safe, efficient metropolis that will take us into the 21st century. So that's the energy the building is bringing. It's the most deliciously 80s aesthetic you can possibly imagine. And um, the fashion is incredible. The set design is incredible. Everything about the movie's look is just delicious, pristine 80s stereotype through and through. It's beautiful. And... Um, we learned pretty quickly that everybody's on good terms. Maybe Pat, a.k.a. Aunt Trish, I don't know what the name thing is with that, um, is maybe a little bit tired of uh, Carol Ann's fucking around because she's still being tormented by this Henry Kane figure who is the sort of source of what is described as the beast in the first movie. And he's like this old-timey reverend guy who wants to like steal her and like they'll get, go to the light or something. And that's really all you need to know. So... What ensues is basically, you know, fighting evil demons. And you got it. There there you go. You got the movie. It's uh, Carol's, Carol Ann is trying to figure that out. Um, the the parents are trying to figure that out. There's a group of sneaking around teens that get caught up in all of it. And the doctor gets caught up in all of it. And it becomes a very fairly contained kind of horror quest to try to help rescue Carol Ann and sort of banish these demons um, to wherever the fuck they come from the other side, I guess they, they, they play a lot with like the interdimensionality and the sort of liminal space between dimensions, which is defined a lot in terms of like reflections or things in mirrors, um, or doubles doppelgangers at one point. And, um, there's something that's so visually compelling about having a mirror or having like a mirrored hallway and as someone walks by it and the reflection of the mirror like all the doors open and like demons step out or like creepy guys step out or uh, things happen in reflections that don't happen in reality that confuse people because it's playing with this sort of threshold between the one side and the other side that uh i think makes for a movie that is super compelling to just have play out in front of you um because it's leaning into that pretty much from the jump it really doesn't waste any time from the beginning the the building starts like fucking growling and making weird noises and the glass is all fucking breaking but even if you just think about like the opening thing with carol ann in that bedroom that's like all mirrors <laughs> and she's seeing the like window washer guy <laughs> and it's like mm -hmm. it, it sets up right away like what the visual motifs at play are um there's that and i find that it plays a lot with sort of like escalators and stairs or like things that take you from one place to another place from one level to another. And a lot of like crisscrossing in that there's some great shots of like frantic going around on some escalators. And, um, before I get too carried away, cause I've said a lot about this movie without us really getting into it. Um, what I would like to do, Liam is just sort of cut right to the chase in the way that the movie cuts right to the chase. And, uh, what'd you think about Poltergeist three or actually before you answer that, what were your expectations for Poltergeist 3? I feel like we don't go into expectations as much anymore. And if we're going to our roots, I want to know what you expected going in. All right. So my expectations for this movie. Um, I expected something that was at least visually interesting because I knew it took place in a high rise. I saw the poster and that's about all I knew about <laughs> the poster is very good. <laughs> Yeah, and that was that was enough for me to suggest this one. I don't know what Poltergeist 2 is about, and maybe it has some sort of rad setting, but I saw the high-rise poster for this film, and I thought it would be cool to do. Beyond that, I, I wasn't really expecting anything because um, 
I've seen the first movie once and I think it's a really well made haunted house movie. Um, and I've seen a lot of haunted house movies and some of them work for me and some of them don't. And I, I don't, I don't know enough um, about the subgenre in order to know what works for me and what doesn't. Um, so I was kind of just looking to uh, have a fun time with this movie, a fun time with the scares without coming into it and having baggage from the first movie because to be frank i don't remember a whole lot of characters from the first movie i know carol ann um because she's on the poster and she's iconic but other than that i wouldn't have even been able to tell you whether or not nancy allen pat and um and her husband bruce i didn't know if those were recastings of the characters from the first movie until you know i watched a little bit more and their characters got revealed um so I was really just looking for a fun haunted house movie. Is that what you got? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I really did. Uh, so this movie, it starts off really strong, I think. Exactly where you said, where you see this dude window washing and Carol Ann is, is staring at him as he does it. It establishes this really cool uh, and unique setting, I think, not only for... Uh, a horror movie um i think a horror movie in a high rise is already novel because we have so many horror movies that take place in suburban homes um just like the first poltergeist movie and so i think it's unique to the haunted house genre to have it take place in a in a big um apartment complex and but i also think it's of course unique to the first movie because it's it's cool to go from suburban house in number one to high-rise building in number three it shows the distance between the two movies and it shows they need to do something new but it also doesn't tell me that we're so far in this franchise that like we're in space or we're in the antarctic you know right so it's still this is not poltergeist in the hood leprechaun style yeah that's right um and so i liked right from the beginning that we were in this different place i liked that we had carol ann in it again um i really liked her in the first movie and i think she's the most compelling character of the first movie and i'm interested to know where she is a few years after the events of poltergeist i'm not so much interested in her entire family because she had such a connection with the uh the other world the nether world the poltergeist world and um i wanted to see more of her and uh we got that at the beginning and that was cool and i think the scares in this movie are really innovative really creative stuff that i haven't seen uh in haunted house movies let alone in horror movies um mm-hmm. this movie goes to some really wild places that isn't just a ghost moving things you know this isn't paranormal activity um it's a bit more the puddle effect is yeah so good (laughs) so good yeah yeah this um this isn't just like things going bump in the night and it isn't just a creature that is popping up and scaring you kind of like um the conjuring or the insidious movies i like both those movies but um that is those movies have like a more um uh, a more established antagonist, whereas this movie, the antagonist is just like the high rise itself and the way that the high rise can um, uh, manipulate yeah. itself to be haunted. Yeah. And the, that's the building is effectively the thing possessed. Like, 
Yeah, which is which is great. Um, that's actually what I wanted from the movie without realizing it. You know, when I looked at the poster, I was so um, entranced by that high rise. And so what I really wanted was for the high rise to be haunted. And that's what we got. Um, I'm not over the moon about this movie. In fact, while I was watching it, there were a lot of times I was actually really down just because I enjoyed so much of it. Not so I enjoyed a good amount of it so much that the stuff that I wasn't enjoying was really sticking out to me. I think there's some really awful acting in this movie. I think there's a really, uh, it has a really slow middle with a lot of exposition where it seems to be tying itself into the greater ideas of poltergeists and uh, and sort of making a mythology for the f- a franchise that I'm not too interested in. Um, there's a bit too many uh, balls in the air in terms of subplots. Um, and Carol Ann, you know, like she goes away for a lot of the movie so that we can focus on her parents, um, her adoptive parents in this case, or the teenagers. I wasn't super interested in that. So I came away from the movie, honestly, kind of middling, but I still liked what I liked enough that I'm going to remember this movie. And I would probably even in a few years time forget the stuff that i didn't like enough to put it on again or even show it to some people knowing that i didn't like a good amount of it because the strong stuff in here is so strong yeah i i agree with a lot of your criticism but at the same time and this could be a result of my expectations being like basement level because it was like you know I had no attachment to the original. I didn't really know what was up with the original. This was basically what if that, but the building was taller. Um, I didn't have huge expectations. Uh, This is um, probably one of my favorite things we've ever watched on this podcast, which, you know, 36 movies in is a pretty strong statement. Um, And it's because of what you're talking about, where the strong stuff is so, so so strong that it's so immediately captivating when you're sort of getting eased into it which eased almost isn't the word because it gets going very quickly but i i found that i really liked the the dynamic that this family unit had um some of the writing is very bizarre or like stilted um or just doesn't feel like the way real people talk but i liked that about it um, because everyone is doing it, so you just kind of get used to it. And you're like, yeah, this is just how people talk in Poltergeist. It's fine. Um, there's a lot of very deliberate enunciation and a lot of word choice that that struck me as kind of weird. But I liked that. And I thought the... I got, I got down with the teen stuff. Honestly, I kind of wish there was more of the teen stuff because like the sneaking around, fucking around was fun. And I think there's a version of this where the sneaking around becomes a necessary element of like tracking down Carol Ann that could have been fun if you skewed it in that direction. Uh, I think when you look at the movies together, I, I understand why it's more about the familial connection and like the aunt and the uncle sort of getting it together and attaching to that like love and purity sort of angle that fights off this like cold evil. And um, I think it all really coalesces because the the scares are so strong and the visual motifs are so strong that can carry it. And I found that I really liked a lot of the performances. I talked about Heather O'Rourke already, who just fucking crushes this movie. But um, even in some of the 
weaker parts in the film. I found that with things like the doctor or with Donna, um, or, you know, Nancy Allen too, like some of it is definitely weird and I'm not denying that it's weird. It's like some of the scripting choices are weird. Some of the ways things are said feel off, but I liked that. And I just had so much fun watching it. And I felt like I was constantly being impressed or genuinely surprised by the decision that the movie made that it was just a, it was a blast. That's awesome, man. I'm so glad. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm so happy that we returned to our roots, so to speak. And, um, it wasn't just this very like blah kind of viewing experience because it reminded me a bit about why we did this at all, which is that there are these late sequels or forgotten movies that really just have great fucking ideas and yeah, no yeah, one this remembers is, this them. Is the stuff. This is the stuff that feels the best. I like that uh, you came up with this podcast title that is so stretchy and uh, you know, we're going to stretch it again. It's a lot no of doubt. fun to do. And uh, and there are movies that are worthwhile to talk about that we can manage to get this title around, and that's a lot of fun. But finding stuff like this is really really satisfying. I feel like I'm, uh, you know, like a kid like digging through like a record collection, you know, or like going to the video store and just grabbing something random off the shelf and putting it in, and you end up being surprised. It's a really satisfying feeling. And so while um, I, I I did get bothered by some of the stuff in this movie. The the stuff I liked is is so good that um it is gonna be up there with stuff like um Exorcist three and Carrie two that I'm gonna yeah. recommend and take away from this podcast. Even though I, I I think those two are stronger movies on the whole, this one is just its highs are so high it's yeah it's highs are so high it's it's honestly dude like i couldn't even tell you if i which i like more this one or the original poltergeist oh that's because, tight that's awesome because because the big stuff from that original poltergeist i honestly think is like no better than the big stuff in this movie and i don't remember being bothered by any of the in-between stuff in that first poltergeist movie i said it all works well as a whole but really that's just um that's just going off my recollection. And I honestly think that because I like the big stuff in this movie, and that'll probably lead me to rewatch it, I think the stuff in between might be stuff that I learned to like for uh, its campiness. You know, like Sleepaway Camp is a movie like that for me, where it has a lot of really high highs that stuck with me so much that I would show it to people, and I just fell in love with the in between stuff. And yeah. so that might happen here and even if it doesn't uh i'm gonna check this out again in my lifetime because it's there is there's some really good stuff in this movie guys really good there's something immediately endearing about dr seaton saying um saying what post hypnotic suggestion and just like the fucking way that dude says that, I was like, I'm in, love him, perfect, oh, dude. He's <laughs> he's gonna he's gonna be my biggest hurdle going forward in getting into this movie. He is he's wild. It's without, ridiculous. Without hyperbole, like maybe the worst actor I've encountered on this podcast. I think I thought he was, but I absolutely love it. Terrible. But he's so and, good. Um, and just because everyone else in the movie isn't being like campy the way he is, it's actually a pretty besides 
Scott, I think, who's the boyfriend, and even then, it feels like he's like trying to really act. And Scott's he's just got not goofy charm for me, just based on how his face looks versus what his performance is like. I'm like, this guy seems nice. <laughs> I mean, I I guess he does seem nice, yeah, but I just <laughs> so, I don't think he can act. Like he and Doctor Seton are the only two guys uh, that don't have a Wikipedia page. Yeah, on, well, there there were you know. moments where I I honestly was getting Nightmare on Elm Street one energy from this movie and that is like the biggest praise i could possibly give it um not just in terms of like with the teens specifically although i do think there are moments where uh laura flynn boyle playing donna is like fantastic but the way those things coalesce with the way that the horror goes from being very understated to very pronounced and just how strong the effects game is i felt like i was getting images of that while watching this a lot which was great that's a great comparison. No, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, the puddle sequence, like you said, is uh, really sticks with you. The sequence where Laura climbs out of uh, Tangina's body screaming. That, that is that caught me so off guard. Yeah, yeah. I was well, so not ready for that. Yeah, and that's very much Nightmare on Elm Street, where the scares are kind of below the surface and creepy. And then this that that scene in particular does this wicked like one two punch where tangina dies immediately she's like talking into yeah. the mirror turns and into like it, a skeleton like it, it, she becomes a skeleton and she looks gnarly on the ground and i was so shocked and i'm like oh my god that's the scare i guess and then laura donna. donna breaks breaks out of her body and, and while screaming. she's breaking out of the body she's shrieking and honestly like that that whole sequence just has so many components that you think that it would be enough to scare you. And then it's, there's just another thing on top of it, you know? Yeah. It's like one of the earliest scares, like the first big scare, if you don't count the window washer thing, which isn't really like a proper thing, um, is Carol Ann like goes up. So yeah, her whole room is mirrored. And then when you realize that even the door is mirrored, like when Nancy Allen comes in in the morning, even that was like, Oh, that's a door. Okay. Um, but, uh, Carol Ann goes up and is hearing this voice because there, there are moments where she sort of spaces out and is just like staring and people think that that's her like trying to weird people out basically um, they point that out when they're in the school behind the two way glass and the guy's like it feels like she's staring at me but it's because in the reflections because it's this liminal space between dimensions she can literally see Kane the like demonic presence like taunting her and like she can hear it so she's staring at that and she's hearing that really early in the movie. And she goes up to the mirror, which serves as this sort of gateway, and grabs onto it. And then a demonic version of her has her hands come out of the other side and latches onto her and lifts her up in the air. <laughs> and, oh, and you're yeah, just immediately was... like, oh, we're fucking in it. Like, this is happening now. And it's so good. <laughs> like, Yeah. And she's just screaming. That's when her performance yeah, is she's really incredible. off there too. I'm with you. I I, I I think she's absolutely incredible. I think she's uh, a catch. She's a find. I would put yeah. her up there on lists of like top horror performances. I think she's so good. Yeah, she's she's definitely up there in the conversation with uh, Exorcist Girl name. I'm I'm forgetting her name. Yeah, L Linda Blair. Thank you, Linda Blair. Absolutely. Um, it's it's it's. It was really upsetting to learn that this was her last movie. That bums me the fuck out. Um, totally. Yeah. Uh, so to get a little bit away from the scares, because they'll come up, uh, just a more in-depth kind of plot thing 
is that so um bruce is managing this building and the building's fucking freezing and there's giant ice everywhere and nobody can figure out why the fucking building is so cold and they just assume it's because it's new and um at the same time there's glass panels again with the reflecting theme that uh are by the elevators which similar to the staircases act as like a transportive thing that tend to get stuck in a way or crisscross that don't really work. Um, this movie wears its visual motifs to describe its themes very much on its sleeve, but I think it works and they're trying to figure out like what's wrong with the building and um, Nancy, I keep saying Nancy Allen, <laughs> Pat, the character played by Nancy Allen um, is like a art gallery manager and it's in the same building. Like this building apparently has everything in it. You could possibly imagine uh, cause there's like a mall section. There's a supermarket on the same floor as the pool, which we get to later. This movie's got it fucking all. And, um, she's like planning a gallery opening. Uh, and there's a great shot where she's sitting and behind her is like three mirrored walls. And one of the statues or the sculptures, the head just turns around and you're like, Oh, okay. But, um, so they're sort of managing Carol Ann, who's going through this therapy with this doctor that's a bit like hypnosis based to sort of try to get to the heart of her difficulties dealing with what is actually this like demonic presence. And um, they assume that it's a weird mix of like projecting her imagination and manipulating people into believing her. Um, so people go along with seeing things that she's seeing, which I think plays so well into the visual way they illustrate that with the reflection and everything. And then Donna is also there. Uh, and Donna just wants to really go to a party and hang out with Scott, which I get. And uh, Carol Ann gives her the blessing for that. So they go and like goof around as teens um, before getting roped back into it because Carol Ann becomes almost immediately besieged by uh, this presence uh, when Donna leaves the apartment. And um, from there, it becomes a quest to over the course of this night, try to get Do um, try to get Carol Ann out from this other dimension and um donna and scott get sucked into at one point pat nearly gets sucked in and it's just trying to um emphasize this sort of like familial bond that they have and maybe bring it back in the case of nancy allen who is just like feels like this kid got fucking offloaded by her shitty in-laws and um doesn't want to deal with her shit anymore because um a lot of people think she's just like a bullshit artist so it's really tiring for them and uh yeah it becomes this mission to try to like get her back which initially sort of falls on Carol Ann navigating this herself, but increasingly becomes the responsibility of Bruce and Pat, which is a, a transition I'm not crazy about. I would have liked it to rely more, I think, on the younger characters. But given the yes. themes that it's playing with, I understand why it's the adults. But in my ideal version of this movie, the teens sneaking around becomes a much more predominant aspect of trying to get Carol Ann back. And I'm absolutely if with Carol Ann could have some more of her agency, that would be nice when she's on the other side. But anyway, I'll let you go ahead. I'm with you, Corey. I think um, the kids, as dopey as they are, are endearing. Um, you know, we've talked before. I really like stories about teenagers. I liked seeing them kind of sweet life yeah. of Zack and Cody, their <laughs> way around the high rise. Yeah. And I think Carol Ann is a super strong character right from the very beginning. You know, she says something to her dad like, uh, um, here, let me get this up quick. Yeah, you have you have the quote because I know oh, that yeah. they have a discussion about what day class A means. But while you're looking for yeah. that, I just want to say that if we want to talk about 80s lingo in this movie, um, there's a point where the, the teen girls are talking about their boyfriends being too horny, which is, a, I guess, a conversation people have. And um, 
I forget what they're tra- like. They're trying to say like, oh, like I wish like Jeff or whatever be like more into that. And then somebody says it'd be totally radical to try. And then Donna says, get a grip, girls. <laughs> and it's just like, oh yeah, that's the dialogue you love to hear. <laughs> that's good stuff. Yeah. Um. So this is uh, this is when I noticed the little girl is a badass. It's my third point in uh, taking notes on the movie. So it happens early on. She says to uh, oh, Bruce, I might know she says. Is. She says a woman is entitled to change her mind. And uh, she's just, she's so strong. Um, and she's like a lot more. She's lot very more articulate. S- she's very articulate. She's very self-assured, which is such a nice change of pace in regards to the Haunted House movie that's centered on a kid. Because a lot of times you get a kid that's either um, just having to like suffer at the hands of the, the spooky spooky and then the the parents have to save them or you get a kid that is just like so annoyingly tied to the supernatural stuff that you can't latch onto them at all because they're just supposed to be like a creepy kid who sees what an adult can't see but this girl it does a really good job at being latched into that world but also being a regular kid and also being like a like a kid who's like on the cusp of like tw- 12 years old and is finding her own identity it's really satisfying to see after the first poltergeist movie where she is this character who's um doesn't have as much identity because she's a 5-year-old kid and she is instead just sort of um attached to the creepy stuff going on and she needs her family to come save her and this one she has a lot she has a lot more depth and a lot more complexity and i think the actress pulls it off really well which is why i'm upset that she's not in more of the movie and disappears in that middle portion because um i think if she if she would have more agency i would be more invested from front to back and also if the teenagers had more agency and more direction if it wasn't just they're going to separate for a bit to go dick off in a pool and then they're going to quickly get pushed to the sides it ends up all just feeling a bit pointless and so if we had stuck with those kids and tied their plight in with um her rescue and and then they were able to band forces and do the whole kid takes on a demon thing i would really dig that yeah if it was a touch more nightmare on elm street i think we'd be in better territory for sure but and i think there's just something to say too about like those 80s kids having such like immediately understandable identities that you do kind of want to see where that goes like there's a kid wearing a fucking bolo tie it's like tell me more about bolo tie kid who only does good in auto class like i want to know more about that guy wicked haircuts and hairstyles oh, the, the red movie, the dude. red-headed actress the who red-headed, has like the crazy they, updo <laughs> they couldn't even get that updo in frame half the time it's, it was incredible it's just it's and, it's phenomenal and after they go swimming and they're being like reprimanded by the people in the high rise you see them just like soaking wet their hair is down regular and you just see them as like normal people they look like they could exist in the modern age which just blew my mind because it's really only hairstyles that make people seem so old yeah and i mean the fashion is very good in this movie too um nancy allen's outfits are just off the goddamn chain and it's got this very i can't think of the word that is used to describe like the architectural and interior design aesthetic that is prevailing here but i know i love it and i'm just blanking on the word right now and i don't care enough to google it but just the way this building looks is just phenomenal and it plays into how these characters look and how they feel and how those things coalesce into one another 
and then you have Bruce and Pat who are newly wed. Um, I believe that's what the movie says. I think like the art director assistant at one point describes them as being newlywed because she thought they just fucked in a parking garage and that's why they were covered in water. Uh, little did they know, uh, it was covered in ice and filled with demonic cars just mere moments ago. But uh, I I like the angle of Nancy Allen just getting to the point where she's like, I'm sick of this kid's shit. Because from the outside looking in, yeah, it just looks like you would. it's this kid fucking around and you would get sick of that, especially if it's not your kid. And it's like maybe a weak or predictable redemption arc, but, you know, seeing her come back around is a bit hackneyed, but it's nice. And I think like watching Bruce and Pat have to sort of remind themselves like, look, we we're we're going to figure this out because we care about each other and we can make this happen. And it's for the kids is all great. But the person we haven't talked about enough yet is Zelda Rubenstein, who's playing Tangina, who is just the best <laughs> like um her whole sort of presence is so forceful and she's so self-assured and in touch with these sort of spiritual things that dr seaton is saying is a crock of shit um but that is at odds with her like physical stature and also her voice is very high but it's this great juxtaposition of like yeah but you don't fuck with tangina like tangina's got this shit covered um She's one of the best performances in the movie, I think. Like, And it was so unexpected because I know the characters in other movies, but having not seen them, I had no fucking idea who this person was or was going to be. And then the way that comes together, I thought was really nice. Fair enough, yeah. That's that's great that you were able to get all of that out of it. For me, um, she is a good performance. Um, she's not one of the bad ones in this movie. But a lot of her stuff didn't forward the movie for me didn't make it uh more engaging and i think that comes down to scripting because she is in the first one and um it's no wonder she was cast in that movie she is such an interesting person to watch and she has a great uh manner of speaking not only in the tone of her voice but in the way she's delivering these things um but i found the movie really started to drag when she was just walking down the hallway with the other characters and explaining to them just ad nauseum just super dense stuff about um just like the fucking netherworld and um the ghostly activities and while it's happening they're walking down just this super gray drab hallway and i found the energy just totally got sucked out of the movie at that point um i would have liked if they even if they had just been in a different setting like if they had been in the kitchen that shows up a little while later where there's Mm. a lot more a lot more shadows and lights and um, just like visual complexity. There's layers to it. Whereas just seeing the whole like classic uh, drama TV, like hallway walk and talk while she's doing these things kind of, uh, it's a, it's a bit police procedural for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, But that's the sort of thing that I could see liking more on second and third watch because Mm. I do like her as an actress, whereas the other two performances um, that I do have a problem with, namely Dr. Seton, I think would be my my main problem getting all the way into this movie. Right. So speaking of lighting, and this will go back into the effects a bit. um, So a lot of the effects are light driven. Um, We've talked a lot about the reflection and the reflection is very heavy handed in the way that works thematically. So I'm not going to beat that drum too much. Um, It's literally the opening credit of the movie is the title being reflected. Like 
that the way that's working in terms of thematic pushing on the narrative is very explicit. However, a lot of these things, like the reveals of like this Kane figure are often have like big flashes of light, lightning style, or um, are haloed in light, or um, big the thing style pillars of light are shooting out of things. And it's one of the most visually compelling things that I, I've seen in ages. Um, I think in particular to um, when those cars, all those frozen over cars start like turning on and driving and Kane is in one of them. And you only know that because this giant blinding pillar of light is shooting out of the windshield. Oh and you're just God, like, yeah. holy shit. What the what fuck is this? That is dude. Yeah. And this he's like dodging frozen cars and like, it's it's just it's it's immaculate because you get the kind of effects where it's like that puddle is actually a pool and people are like falling in and there's hands coming out. And it looks great. Or things are covered in ice and the pool freezes over and all this looks great. Um, all the stuff with reflections, I think, is really unique when they're sort of trying to get Carol Ann back. And um, she is in the reflection side of the mirror and you can see that they're standing in the hallway looking into her room that way, even though her room in reality is behind them, like stuff like yeah. that. But the flashes of light or the way things are lit. I'm thinking too of when Carol Ann, I think it's Carol Ann. It might be Bruce is in that stairwell and it's like frozen and it's lit blue and it's got this fog pouring down the stairs and it's lit in this way. And there's, I think there's flashes of light, but it's actually retracting up the staircase mm -hmm. and it like closes in on itself and goes away. And you're just like, fuck man, the effects in this movie are astounding. Um, and they're Absolutely. so, they're so simple. Yeah, yeah, and it's almost all in-camera practical stuff from what I read. It's um, it's amazing that this movie manages to come up with so many killer set pieces that would be, like, one would make a movie worth seeing in the theater. You know, nowadays, um, when a movie comes out, well, not now nowadays, but a couple months ago when we lived in a different world nowadays, and a movie would come out and it would have, like, one killer set piece, like... Uh, the strangers too or even like the house with a clock in its walls where jack black's head is on a baby and it looks super creepy <laughs> i would see people saying like yo you guys gotta go see this movie in the theater particularly for this one scene and this movie is just so chock full of them it blows my mind the puddle alone or the snowy cars or the elevator sequence where Dr. Seaton gets pushed down or all, all the reflection stuff is all enough to make someone go out and see this movie just for that sequence. And the fact that we get so many of them is, is mind-blowing to me. I read that the director says that this is his least favorite of his movies. And while he's proud of some of the stuff in it, he doesn't think it came together quite the way he wanted it to. And I think... I, I get what he's saying there, and I, I'm kind of on the same page as him, but just because the highs are so high, it's just a shame that some of the in-between stuff doesn't quite uh, line up, and it's not as tight as I would want it to be. You know, there's some of the performances, like I said, also, like, there's some talky sequences or some dramatic sequences, even, that go on a bit too long, like when Laura, um, a.k.a. Donna, and... It's actually uh, Laura again Lara, again. <laughs> and uh and scott are running to save carol ann from this puddle mm -hmm. i found that when they got on their knees and they were like calling out for her over and over there's a lot of people say carol ann so much in this movie 
um, they're on their knees and they're like digging through the puddle for for uh, Carol Ann. I found that that went on a bit too long. That it it sucked some of the tension out of the scene. But then Scott that, just falls the fuck in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's a fine line between like going on too long to like get you feeling comfortable and think nothing is gonna happen, and just going on too long because you didn't cut it in time. And in this case, I never thought that nothing was going to happen. You know, I didn't feel safe as they were calling out for so long in this puddle, thinking that everything was all right. I found myself deflated. And then when the high came, I didn't feel like I was as high as I would have gotten had that come a few seconds earlier. And so um, the scare is still super good. Going deep into that puddle one by one is amazing. But um, little things like that where I just think, if the movie had been tighter in a few different places, it would like be like an all timer 10 out of 10 to me. Yeah. And actually really quick, uh, you know who else thought that they said the name Carol Ann too much? Yeah, I know this oh, one. Yeah. yeah. Siskel and Ebert. Yeah. And um, I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't know that when I thought that I was watching this with my girlfriend and I turned to her and I was just like, is this like some sort of joke? Is this a see, reference or something? See, I actually, I just read that the name thing and the name thing did not cross my mind at all oh yeah yeah i don't know it just i was like it seemed fine um oh man it gets bad when uh when laura is saved from aka donna and she's in the bed and just screaming carol ann like over and over and over and over and over pulled out of uh tangina's body and it's just like hysterical it's it's really bad there and because it happens earlier in the parking lot and then they go even harder this time i honestly thought i was like missing a joke or something (laughs) it was ridiculous um i uh i certainly had less of a problem with that and i also think it does like coalesce better for me um because i found that even in the sort of in-between scenes uh there was something for me to like whether that is like a weird campy line delivery that i think works because of how some of it comes across or just how the movie looks like the way the visual sensibility that it has and just like how 1988 it looks um i always thought was compelling even if um the things primarily driving it forward weren't i feel like a lot of reviews um i briefly looked at before we recorded because i only watched the movie today um are complaining that it's not this like suspense ridden like fucking thriller masterpiece and it's like you know what were you guys expecting right and that's not to and, say that the movie immediately gets a pass to be bad because it's called Poltergeist 3. We've seen in Exorcist 3, I think, a movie that does perfect that sort of carrying over of the specific kind of tension. But it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know, you look at that poster and I don't know what you're expecting other than what this movie is. And what this movie does, it does so well that I don't know how you could possibly not appreciate what it's doing. Yeah, um, this movie like does so much more than I expected. The scares in this are so much more like high class than I thought they would be. I thought this would be far goofier and far like uh, a scare that you like experience quickly and then it's gone and it's just there for like a one or two second thrill. But the scares in this movie really run deep that I, I have a hard time thinking how someone could watch this and not be affected by it and just throw it away as some forgettable uh not quite scary schlock because um i got what i wanted in this movie that it was fun and the scares were fun but the scares were fun and effective in a way i honestly like never 
could have predicted. This yeah. is some of the most creative, scary stuff I've seen ever. It's a tr- like, I I don't want to whittle it down strictly to how good its effects work is, because I think there's a lot to like beyond that. But this is a master class of effects, and that cannot be overstated. Um, and I do think that everything that coalesces around that works and it's the appropriate sort of narrative thematic housing to keep those effects in but everything about how it plays off the reflections and that sort of mirroring and all of that um and just how good it looks um it's just so strong it's so effectively done uh that i oh the only other thing i think i would complain about that that uh, i don't want to forget to mention so, uh, there's a point where, like, Scott and Donna have literal evil doppelgangers that have their skin peeling apart, and that, like, mm-hmm. never comes up again, and it's not even clear what happened to Scott by the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't know why that's in there, because uh, nothing really comes up for Donna's version of that either, other than uh, the doctor gets killed. But, like, they do that. We don't see Scott again, I don't think. Um, and then Donna is like rescued, but I would have liked to see if they're going to lean into that. I think there's another opportunity where if you keep the teens more predominantly in the narrative of the movie, you could doppelganger some of them and then that becomes fun. But, um, really I'm just at the point where I want to like, I want to buy the Blu-ray of this movie and I want to get the Nightmare on Elm Street Blu-ray and just have like a double feature and see how that comparison plays out in reality mm-hmm because uh, i think that would be that would be a trip yeah this is a movie that demands to be on your uh wallpaper as your desktop oh on your phone there's so many stills i would pull from this fucking movie dude don't even get me oh. started we'll be here all goddamn day dude i just remembered another one that hadn't come to mind yet while we were recording when scott climbs out of the ice water pool it's so good and he's running around how they make him look dude? like that I have no idea, dude. A lot of this stuff blew my mind. The mirror stuff is absolutely mind-blowing. And to go back to uh, your your sequence that bothered you a bit because of its greater context in the movie when Scott and uh, Donna are doppelgangers, um, I think maybe my despondence with some of the movie actually benefited me there or at least um, means that I'm not as bothered by it because by that point I had already written off the Scott character and um, I didn't think that this was going to be the kind of movie that kept everything straight and in line in regards to the characters so I'm just able to remember that sequence as being casual killer visual effects sequence and when Scott starts to pull off her face it's just once again like another trick that I didn't know this movie had and then and then you get a great shot of them walking down the hallway in the mirror because oh, um, so at this point i've i've fallen in love with like the themes of this movie the visual themes um in the mirror and you see that uh donna's um the, the writing jacket. on the back of yeah. her jacket yep. is yep. backward oh my gosh dude it's so so good i love the visual motifs in this movie it's, i really do i think it's I think the so mirrors compelling. really kill it it's just in terms of like the character work and the narrative is where I think it falls a bit flat for me. But the more we talk about this movie, like even just hearing you say the plot summary, I just want to watch this movie again. I know. Um, and I didn't feel that way right after watching it. Like I was, I was a bit let down because of um, I liked it so much. And so the stuff that I wasn't super high on 
got me down. But now I'm only a day removed from watching this movie. And I feel like that stuff is already fading. The bad stuff is fading from my memory. And the good stuff is only increasing. And so I want to watch the movie again, not only to see that really cool stuff again, but also think, hey, I need to give this other stuff another chance because um, the movie is just like, so effective in in getting its claws Uh, into you i think if you see the performances coming you can get on their level a little bit easier if like a campiness thing was the problem um i think if you know that that's there it should be easier to be like yep this is what we're doing with this part and now we're in the other part where the effects are great um i hope so man so because holy moly is dr seaton terrible he's bad but i loved it to death after dude i feel like it was a conscious decision it had to have been it had to have been a conscious decision mm-hmm. to make him talk like maybe that. Maybe by maybe by the actor, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know no, if it was if the, by the, the director. If the director didn't want that, you don't you stamp that out like day two of shooting. Ah, uh, dude, you don't deliver uh, every line in that voice because this is a director who didn't do much no. since, and because of his feelings of the movie that it doesn't like come together as much as he wanted it to. I just it feels to me like someone who just maybe wasn't as confident as he as he uh, ought to have been in, as, in his director. As a director. And so like he did, he did himself like the visual effects work, at least the digital effects work, which is like the lightning bolt at the yeah. end and stuff. So the that fact tells that me there's that, like one digital I, shot is fucking insane. Yeah. And so like he's an effect minded guy. So it honestly wouldn't surprise me if like performances and directing performances wasn't his strong suit. And so the Dr. Seton, uh, sequence that really bothered me is is juxtaposed with a great visual effect sequence and i think that's why it, it bothered me it's when is it the two-way the coffee mug yeah yeah the coffee mug when he's with carol ann who's just killing it as a great actress smashes the mirror um he just like he looks at what happened and then he turns back to his bros who are observing it on the other end of the mirror and he's just like yes it's amazing the coffee mug must have been thrown because she is connected to the demon world. Post-hypnotic suggestion made you break the mirror with your mug. Yeah, and as we're saying it, it like sounds charming and funny, but it I, just I genuinely it, it did not fit. I, I genuinely liked it, but I have an awareness of like what it is that made me like it, and it's that it's real dumb. Uh yeah. And- and when Scott, dude, he when he's like in the garage, they're in the garage. It's just I liked it. it I'm oh down to cl- I'm down to clown. Um, so I got I gotta ask. Yeah. This is definitely on our underrated horror movie Mount Rushmore, right? Yes. Yeah. So it's what what is it? What is as of this recording our underrated horror movie Mount Rushmore? It's Carrie Two. I'm not a, I'm not American. How many people are in Mount Rushmore? Four. Four. So it's Carrie Two for sure. Yes. Exorcist Three. Yes. Yes. This. Yes. Yes. Is there a fourth? There has to be. There has to be a fourth. Out of everything that we've watched, is there a fourth that we think people really need to give the time of day? Mm, okay. Because that's that's very different than underrated movies that we enjoyed. Like, yeah. I love Halloween Resurrection, but it's not an undiscovered gem. It's a very it's a it's a very seen gem. It's a popular movie. People who love Halloween check it out. And, you know, I think we're going to be outliers in that movie whereas i think the three movies that you just listed i think most people would see them after avoiding them and dig them so i wouldn't put halloween resurrection up there despite loving it yeah and we're allowed to not have a fourth yet 
but um, it's one of those things where is it Black Christmas that I don't, I don't I, know if that hit the same point for us. No, I think these. if 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 we were able to put something that's like 2019 up there, it'd be and Doctor it feels Sleep like too soon for me. It would be Doctor it, yeah, Sleep. Yeah, I, I was gonna say that, but it does feel too soon. Um, but I think things like Hellraiser and the you know the Psycho remake, and obviously like the Nightmare on Elm Street reboot, like they just don't hit the levels that the three these three movies hit. So I think that maybe this is where we're at with that. Is, I would um, I would put um in our fourth slot for now at least I would put Black Christmas 2006 over 2019 even if time wasn't a factor just because the fun stuff in there and the way it really rings out all that it can from the Christmas gimmick just satisfies me so much that I would put that one in there too. Yeah, well, then we can have we can have slightly divergent versions cuz I would be content to put the 2019 Black Christmas on so we can just say Black Christmas in some capacity you want to check out um but i do yeah. think that there's a chance that those two get usurped if we come across like a true and proper hidden gem at some point like we have up to this point um but i do want to reiterate just for everybody if you're looking for a movie to watch we know you're all at home you're looking for a movie to watch you can't tell us that you're not carry two the exorcist three poltergeist three watch these movies and any of the Black Christmas movies. And any Even Black Christmas movie you want. if you misunderstand what we said and you go to the original movie, you're fine. Yeah, so um, time doesn't mean anything anymore anyway. You may as well fucking celebrate Christmas right now. Um, and I think I think we're good. I think, I think that's all we've got for Poltergeist 3. It was a much, much needed pleasant surprise and a reminder of the, the sort of fundamentals that, that fuel this podcast. And I'm very happy that we saw it yeah yeah me too dude it uh the last thing i'll say about it is that it feels to me like a song with really really catchy choruses and unmemorable verses okay and, yeah yeah um, yeah it's kind of like kind of like like any like imagine dragon songs or like uh out of the woods by taylor swift the chorus on that one like kind of sucks but the verses are killer and when it comes to music like that you hear it and when something sticks with you you want to go back and check it out again if a chorus or a verse is really catchy even if the other part of the song sucks it sticks in yeah. your brain and you'll you listen to the whole out. song like yeah you're not going to so, go listen to a verse of a song so you may exactly. as well watch all of poltergeist 3 is what we're saying <laughs> and and after watching it that one time i think the good stuff is going to stick with you and the bad stuff if even if you, maybe you won't even think it's bad but if the bad stuff is there i think the high stuff is so high that something is going to it's going to latch on to something in your brain like a catchy song would and you're going to go hey even if i didn't dig those verses all that much there's something that makes me want to go back and check this song out again and that's where i am with poltergeist 3 right now it's out of the woods by taylor swift it's any Imagine Dragons song, and I want to go check it out again. And songs like that tend to grow on you, dude. It's Time by Imagine Dragons is an absolute banger. So I'll um, leave it at that. Yeah, well, and the last thing I think I think I want to say, I think I think it only feels right because we've given her so much praise, is that this one goes out to uh, Heather O'Rourke, who we lost absolutely too soon and does great work in these movies. Yeah, I, want to, I want to dedicate this one to her because she crushes this movie. And um, I think with that, that's a good spot for us to close. And I'd like to thank everyone once again for listening to another episode of They Made Another One. You can find us all over the internet on Twitter at They Made Another, all one word, on Anchor, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Stitcher Breaker and everything else as They Made Another One. 
You can also find us on Letterboxd. That is at T-M-A-O. Think they made another one if you took most of the redundant letters out. Uh, you can reach us via email at tmaopodcast at gmail.com with recommendations for future episodes, questions, comments, and your favorite movie that really just feels like a catchy song. Liam, where can people find you? You guys can find my film writing alter ego, Graham the Haunted Marshmallow, on Twitter and Letterboxd. My username is Graham the Mallow, and on Letterboxd, you will see that I've rated this movie far higher than I would have if I rated it immediately after watching yesterday. It's a grower, that's for sure. Oh, I can't wait to see what you rated it, because I haven't put it on my Letterboxd yet, but if you want to find out what I rate this movie, you can find me on Letterboxd and Twitter at Mr. Corey Price. And uh, with that, um, we're going to keep pressing on through these weird times. We're going to keep checking out good movies, hopefully. And uh, we want to thank everybody again for uh, keeping up with us, keeping us part of your routine as things get a little a little weird. So uh, thanks again for listening, and uh, we'll catch you here next time for more. They made another one?